Welcome once again, ladies and gentlemen, to the Napoleon Bonaparte Podcast, episode 51. Welcome back again, J. David Markham. Well, uh, good evening, uh, Cameron. How are you doing uh, today? Very good. Thank you, sir. Um, Why don't you welcome back our uh, special guest? Right. Well, as those of you who listened to our episode 50 uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, you'll know that our special guest is uh, Professor Alex McEberedzi, uh, an old friend of mine, or I should say a very young friend of mine, disgustingly so, uh, uh, who, who teaches uh, uh, at, at Louisiana State in Shreveport and, and who graduated from the acclaimed uh, Institute on Napoleon, the French Revolution. Uh, and he is, among other things, an expert on uh, just about anything to do with Napoleonic uh, period uh, Russia. Uh, and we brought him on to talk about the campaign of uh, 1812. And, and, and we'll be talking about a lot more than that over, over time, I'm sure. And last week, uh, Alex, we, we got the, uh, uh, the Grand Armée of the French, the, the Napoleonic uh, Allied Forces, uh, all the way to the Battle uh, of, of, of Borodino. Uh, and for a, a couple of days in early September, they sort of slogged it out. Uh, and when the smoke uh, finally cleared, uh, General uh, Katusov had withdrawn the Russian uh, forces, uh, thus uh, preserving uh, the the Russian army to to fight again, which was arguably his his main goal in in, in all of this. Uh, the French were left with something of a pyrrhic victory, but it was a victory, and the road to Moscow was open. Uh, the The Russian uh, army declined to defend the holy uh, city of Moscow. Uh, which was, as I understand it, not really the capital in those days, which was in St. Petersburg, where Emperor Alexander and his court was at the time. So as as Mira uh, enters uh, one end of uh, Moscow with his cavalry, the the Russian rear guard is is leaving uh, uh, on on the other end, uh, and uh, so now we we have the French uh, occupying uh, Russia, uh, rather excuse me, occupying Moscow, and 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 tell me, Alex. Uh, what, what do you think of uh, Kutusov's uh, decision uh, not to uh, try to defend, throw up some kind of an additional barricade uh, between Borodino and, and Moscow to, to try to, to save the city? Well, uh, thank you. It's nice to, uh, to be back at the show, so thank you for having me again. But, Welcome um, back, Alex. Thank yes, you. Uh, uh, but regarding your question, I think it was a very sure decision. Uh, it, it it showed ultimately. It's, it's of course it's easy in hindsight in hindsight to say uh, to say it. But uh, um, even at the time, of course, uh, the calmer heads in the Russian army realized that uh, defending Russia was not feasible, or at least not necessary at this moment. It uh, brought uh, greater damage to the Russian army, and to, it was. Uh, uh, more pragmatic to surrender the city and allow the French to enter it. And uh, Kutuza was right uh, on, on insisting in, uh, on making the final decision to do it. Uh, ultimately, we know what happened. Uh, the, as as Kutuza um, famously says, Moscow will be the sponge that will suck in the French army and destroy it. And uh, in many respects, the, 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 uh, the 
disintegration of the French, of the Grand Armée starts in Moscow with the, with the difficulties that the French and the Allies experience in the capital. Sure. That, now let's uh, let's sort of look uh, at 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 the, the the game plan, if you will, uh, uh, of both the Russians and and the French, and and in particular uh, when we think of the the Napoleonic Russian army, uh, the Grand Armée, the Great Army, we we think of uh, oh around five hundred thousand or so people uh, crossing the Niemann River at the beginning of the the uh, campaign, and we all know uh, from our history books that that uh, no more than about fifty thousand or so uh, ended up uh, at the end of the campaign uh, but how many soldiers did Napoleon actually have uh, on hand? After the Battle of, of Borodino, and and what had happened to to the rest of them? Um, well, uh, to start with, we know that the first wave of the invasion, of course, had the, sometimes you know you, you see the numbers of six hundred thousand invading friend uh, invading Russia. But one thing to remember is that. Uh, not all of them entered Russia at once. The first wave uh, uh, in, that entered Russia in those three army groups uh, numbered about roughly 450,000. And those troops were used in different directions. Of course, some of them were left to occupy strategic positions, fortresses. Uh, so, And as a result of that strategic consumption, as well as a uh, uh, simple desertion, which was uh, rather high. By the time Napoleon reaches Smolensk, uh, he has about 180,000 troops. Then he suffers around uh, ten to twelve thousand losses at Smolensk, uh, which further reduces his army. He marches onwards to Borodino. By the time he reaches Borodino, strategic consumption, stragglers, and so on, desertion, reduces his army to about one hundred thirty-three thousand. He suffers, uh, depending on <laughs> on which side you uh, you support or she, uh, willing to listen to. You. The French, of course, are saying that uh, the. Uh, that uh, Napoleon suffered less than 30,000 losses. Uh, Russians, especially new uh, generation, the the recent studies by the Russian scholars suggest that the French lost about 30 to 35,000 troops. And so that means that by the time he reaches Moscow, he has at hand around 100,000 troops. Now, considering that he uh, gathered reinforcements over the one-month period that he stayed in Moscow, uh, he has roughly um, hundred of hundred fifty thousand fifteen thousand uh, troops, at least that which uh, you know that this is the number that uh, is prominently featured. Uh, Chambray, uh, Chambray, Georges Chambray, the famous French uh, uh, author and contemporary of Napoleon, who who wrote one of the uh, influential books, histories of the Russian campaign. In his book, he he suggests that the Grand Armée uh, by October numbered around 106,000 troops. So this is the this is the number that we have between 106, 115,000 by the time Napoleon leaves the Moscow. One thing to remember, however, is that many of these are uh, these troops are already demoralized, and by the time, for example, Napoleon gets to Smolensk in November, uh, the number of active uh, troops ready for battle uh, will be actually around 60,000. And so you see this rapid disintegration of the Grand Armée. Well, well, there is, but the, 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 the point I guess I wanted to be sure to make here for our listeners was that the, the decline in the size of Napoleon's army uh, 
was not all attributable to to battlefield losses or or to uh, uh, the 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 dreaded uh, uh, what I like to call the strategic withdrawal from 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 Russia. Uh, there's a very very famous uh, uh, graphic by uh, Charles Joseph Minard uh, that shows the size of Napoleon's army as it goes into Russia and as it comes out, and it and it shows the you know the 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 ever diminishing numbers, and part of that, of course, is because of the the tremendous distances involved. Uh, as you say, you have to leave people along your your uh, uh, routes for for communication. Your communication lines have to be secure. You have to leave people in fortresses. He left people at Smolensk. He left people elsewhere, and. Uh, uh, this is one of the reasons for the decreasing numbers, and we'll see later on that he actually meets up with some of these folks as he as, as he begins to leave. Now, the next the next question I have, though, and the one that used to be very controversial, I, I don't think it's so controversial anymore because I think people have finally come to realize the the, the truth of the matter, uh, and that's the famous burning of Moscow. Uh, all sorts of vivid images, both in in movies like War and Peace, and uh, and 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 certain engravings that you can that you find, and paintings of of the the uh, huge fires uh, as Moscow uh, burns to the ground. Uh, and for many many years, the the Russians insisted, and many historians seem to go along with it, that the French, uh, for whatever reason, uh, burned. Uh, uh, Moscow, but but that doesn't seem to be the case, does it? No, actually, uh, even in Russia, uh, there was always a divide. Uh, you know, even the Russian historical community was divided between those who supported this official view of that French burned it and those uh, who who believed that it was Russian. Uh, the Russians who d- uh, did it. And the interesting thing is that during the imperial period, the, it was the widely uh, accepted that Russians did it. And it is uh, later on, especially in Soviet period, when the change takes place towards the French burning it. But there is no no doubt in my mind. It's from the documents I have seen that the that the Russians have sort of uh, have a role in, uh, in in the burning of Moscow. Uh, the governor of Moscow, uh, Rostopchin, uh, before leaving the city, he uh, releases uh, dozens and dozens of criminals. Um, uh, to, uh, to set, set the fire to the city, but most, more importantly, he destroys, uh, he evacuates uh, uh, almost all the firefighting equipment, and he destroys whatever he can, he couldn't take. And so, exactly. when the fires broke out, uh, French actually couldn't couldn't do anything about it because even even if they wanted, the firefighting equipment wasn't there. Well, that's right. And that was and, actually, and, you know, go ahead. Uh, that was actually a major problem because one thing that people often forget is what happened to the Russian wounded from the Borodino is that they were evacuated to Moscow. And so when the fires broke out, and quite a, a number of them, there's still a, a, a wide-ranging debate on it in Russia. Some scholars go argue as high as uh, 10 to 12,000 of the wounded died in, Mos- in, Mo- in Moscow fire. And uh, on the lower uh, level, the, uh, the scholars refer to a couple thousand of them. Uh, they died in the fires of Moscow uh, that that raged in Moscow because they were not uh, there was no no one no one was able to rescue them. 
Well, sure. They didn't. They to to give them some credit, they didn't have a lot of time. Uh, I do find it interesting, though, that Napoleon gets uh, uh, a lot of complaints from from some circles for uh, the 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 execution of the the uh, soldiers uh, in Jaffa and the uh, Egyptian and and Middle Eastern campaign in 1798-99. And he sometimes is accused of of other uh, atrocities, but we we almost never hear uh, about the uh, wounded uh, prisoners uh, of the Russian army that were rather deliberately uh, sacrificed so that the the Russians could destroy uh, Moscow. And of course, the reason they they wanted to destroy Moscow uh, was to prevent Napoleon from being able to uh, to winter uh, in in Moscow. The winter was coming on. Russian winters are are extremely uh, bitter. And uh, far far worse than anything that uh, that the French were going to be used to. Uh, and uh, uh, had they had they not burned Moscow, would it have been reasonable? Do you think for Napoleon to have kept his hundred and some thousand uh, soldiers, uh, kept his lines of communication open, uh, brought in some more reinforcements as time went on? Uh, and and basically uh, made it an impregnable fortress against uh, against the Russian army until the spring. Would 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 that would that have worked if Russia if if, if Moscow had not been burned down? Uh, that's a good. Um, uh, it's a good uh, probably a good what if scenario. On one side, um, uh, Moscow was a, of course a large city, and uh, uh, without Moscow burning, there was a uh, considerable ammunition and supplies that were kept in Moscow, and Russians could not evacuate evacuate them in time. If I'm not mistaken, when uh, Kutuzov and Rostopchin, uh, you know, uh, hurried to get out of Moscow and evacuate the population, they still left about. Um, uh, over 70,000 muskets, uh, uh, about 40,000 uh, uh, sa- sabers and swords, uh, actually o- o- over 25,000 uh, cannonballs. All that was left in, in, in Moscow and co- what would have been in the, in the French hands. Now, you, you, how, how, how about gunpowder? How about gunpowder? Did, did and they gu- leave yeah. a lot of gunpowder? I don't remember. I don't have the uh, the the report that I have seen. Uh, do not refer to gunpowder as such, but they refer to gu- uh, the the muskets, the cannonballs, and uh, over 150 guns, uh, the cannons. Sure. Uh, and so those would have been in the French hands. Now, one uh, besides them, of course, there would have been a lot of supplies because uh, Moscow had uh, uh, so besides the uh, civilian population, of course, had the garrison uh, to supply. The, the fire destroys all of this, and to give uh, the listeners an idea how how massive the fire was, uh, according to some of the Russian studies, um, uh, Moscow before the fire had about uh, 9,200 buildings, and of those 9,200 buildings in the fire, uh, the fire destroyed 6,500. So two thirds, uh, even you know three three fourths of the of the all properties in the city are destroyed. Uh, and so it, it guts the entire city, and uh, with that is destroyed all the supplies and provisions that the French could have used, and that is a major problem because the French needs to main, of course, need to bring in now all the supplies, and the supply lines is stretched. And what Kutuzov starts doing, and, and that is part of the uh, of that what if scenario that you already mentioned, David, is that uh, even if uh, that uh, after the burning of uh, Moscow, Kutuzov starts creating the flying detachments of uh, of the Russian 
regular cavalry, some of uh, it's uh, it, it, they will have a, a few dozen hussars and some Cossacks uh, that will be mo- mobile detachments, flying detachments as they are called, uh, harassing uh, French communication and supply lines. And so uh, gradually, Moscow is surrounded by these flying detachments. And so uh, one wonders, even if Moscow survived without being destroyed, what would have happened if Napoleon is still in Moscow and has supplies, but at the same time he's surrounded by the Russian uh, uh, flying detachment mobile columns on all directions and Russians are receiving reinforcements. And ultimately, I think uh, it would have forced Napoleon to get out of Moscow anyways, because otherwise he would have been surrounded in the city. Sure, sure. Uh, Well, the fact of the matter, of course, is that the, the, the... Burning of Moscow was was undoubtedly a uh, uh, a, a real brilliant stroke on the part of, of the Russians. However, uh, sad it must have been to uh, uh, you know lose lose their 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 wounded uh, soldiers. But by the way, one of the the to me the more interesting characters uh, during this campaign is a man named. Uh, Denis Davidov, uh, who was actually quite a well-known Russian poet, uh, and and who uh, was in charge of uh, of the irregular uh, soldiers, as I understand. I'm I'm I'm, I'm not coming up with the name right now, uh, and uh, I think he was active during this period as well, wasn't he? Yes, actually, what happened is uh, uh, Davidov. He served in uh, in Hussar regiment. And uh, he served under uh, Peter Bagration, and mm-hmm. during uh, as um, as the Russian armies retreated, uh, Davidov approached uh, Bagration with an offer that if he if he would spare a few hundred uh, hussars, Davidov promised that he would he would harass the communications uh, and supply lines of, of the Grand Armée. And Bagration agreed to that, but he said, I need a permission from Kutuzov. And so he went to talk to Kutuzov, and Kutuzov had some you know, doubts about how effective this would be. And he says, well, he can take about 50 hussars, and we'll see what he will do with him. And so they, you know, with that permission from Kutuzov, and uh, Bagration allows uh, Davidov to take uh, those hussars. And uh, uh, later on, he's, uh, he's reinforced with additional hus- uh, troops. But uh, he creates this flying detachment with which he he does uh, he he operates very effectively, and but he's not the only one. He's most famous uh, because he's poet and he because he's uh, he has written uh, quite quite interesting memoirs. I think a friend of yours, right, David uh, uh, Trube, right, uh, Gregory Trubetskoy. Yes, exactly. he translated Prince, them. Prince Gregory Trubetskoy, at, at my encouragement, I, I'll. I'll claim a little bit of credit anyway, uh, translated uh, his memoirs into English, and, and, and those, uh, those are, are, are available. Uh, now, can you explain, by the way, we always sort of assume, I think, that, that all of our listeners know what we're talking about when we use you know technical term. Explain what a hussar is, just in case there's somebody out there who, who doesn't know, you know what particular type of military individual a hussar is. Well, um, hussar uh, is uh, by the by the nineteen uh, by the nineteenth uh, century, early nineteenth by the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, hussars are uh, cavalrymen, and specifically they are uh, light cavalrymen. Uh, the but the origins come uh, actually from the fifteenth, sixteenth century uh, Hungary, uh, and uh, uh, actually the term hussar itself is in Hungarian in in, in the origin. 
And so they are light cavalry. They are quite often used for skirmishing, for scouting, but they uh, they they uh, they were very effective in, on both sides. Uh, Russian and the, uh, almost all armies in, in in Europe had them, and they were armed with uh, with the, within, uh, with a uh, saber, uh, but also some of them actually uh, carried uh, short muskets, uh, carbines with them. When you when you see images of the dashing young cavalrymen, you know, possibly chasing after the ladies. Uh, with the the very impressive uniform, chances are that's a hussar. They they like to <laughs> see themselves as as the 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 most elegant and dashing of the of the cavalry. They didn't have to wear the great big steel cuirasses and 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 that sort of thing. And and so they. And one uh, thing to, one thing to remember is uh, that famous sabrage, uh, the technique of opening a champagne bottle with a saber, <laughs> which is the. Hussar way to open the champagne. And of course, David, right. you, you, you've modelled your entire image and life on the hussars. I've, I've seen well, you do that trick with the champagne bottle, and you, you wear clothing like that uh, quite often at home well, and, I've, and out. I've, 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 I wear it to bed. I've, 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 I've drunk many a bottle of champagne, <laughs> although I, I must admit I have never quite perfected the 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 method of opening the the champagne with 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 a saber uh and i have an 1813 uh, napoleonic short sword but it you know it doesn't it just it doesn't quite quite do it uh but i'll keep trying i'll keep trying <laughs> there'll be there'll be video of that going up on the website as soon as possible folks Yes, <laughs> don't don't hold your breath. Can I? Can I? Well, as soon as I've managed to get a word in, can I ask a question about the burning of Moscow? Yes, absolutely, Alex. One of the things I mean, you know, I'm in uh, two minds about the burning of Moscow. On one hand, I've always thought, "Wow, what a what a brilliant strategy." Um, on the other hand, I, I question whether or not it was a brilliant strategy. Um, obviously, the devastation done to this this beautiful old city was significant. And I wonder what would have happened if they hadn't burnt Moscow. I mean, what, what's the what if here? If, if they hadn't burnt Moscow, Alexander would have been forced to, you know, uh, uh, sign another peace treaty with Napoleon. There would have been uh, penalties. I imagine Napoleon would have extracted in some form from Alexander. Would the people of Russia or the people of Moscow in particular been worse off substantially if they hadn't burnt Moscow, in your opinion? Uh, well, actually, to start with, uh, one thing to remember that uh, there is no... Uh, there was no predetermined plan to burn Moscow, of course, uh, and in many respects it happened uh, rather um, unexpectedly. And the reason for that is that um, is uh, that governor of Moscow, Fyodor Rostopchin, uh, he was, he's famous in in Russia for his um, uh, <laughs> like Napoleon bulletins. He really liked issuing proclamations, like mini bulletins. Uh, uh, which are uh, rather folksy in their in their style, but they, that will pro- that uh, kept proclaiming immediate and uh, ex- expected victory over Napoleon. And it's um, it uh, quite uh, during when the Iraq War began. It reminded me of that um, Minister of Information. I think uh, I forgot his name in, in Iraq. Who, in Iraq, yes. Yeah. Right, who, who <laughs> was claiming that the Americans are about to surrender to Iraqis when the Americans were about to take Baghdad, and that's what happens in Rostovchin's case when he issues proclamations on uh, all the way until 
uh, after the Battle of Borodino, when he convinces people that uh, Russians are winning, that Napoleon is about even to be captured and dragged back to Moscow. And then suddenly he has to reveal that (laughs) instead of being captured, Napoleon is actually about to capture the city. And so there is a certain panic, and Rostovchin himself is is a, is a, it's a it's a personal matter to him, and so in many respects it is Rostovchin's decision uh, in 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 September on on September 14 that he starts issuing instructions to his uh, po- uh, uh, police constables, uh, telling them to destroy as much buildings as possible to release criminals, and so he does it on his own initiative. Of course, Alexander Emperor Alexander is not aware of it. And uh, there, um, I have not seen any. Uh, I have seen some evidence that Kutuzov was aware of of, of it, and he ordered the. Uh, but he was aware of uh, of the need to destroy uh, military magazines, military uh, uh, depots, supply with supplies and ammunition. But Kutuzov certainly didn't anticipate that it will be it will destroy the whole city. So. Russians themselves didn't expect, I'm sure, um, in my mind, the, the level of destruction that it will bring in, although it might be Rostovchin. <laughs> uh, well, Rostovchin is famous by saying that he will be the first to destroy his own palace. He had a magnificent palace uh, built, uh, home, uh, a kind palace in Moscow, and he, he said that he will destroy it with his own hand if, if Napoleon captured well, it. I was going <laughs> to ask you about that quote. I thought he had said that about all of Moscow, but you're saying that's just about his own palace, that he would burn it, he would torture it or burn it to the ground before he let Napoleon take it. Right, right. So, so it was and only about his own it, premises, not Moscow as, a, from, as, a, from, as far as far as I recall, reading his uh, his uh, writings, yes, uh, that he said. Uh, of, well, actually, it might be that in different places he refers to his palace and he, then he refers to the city in whole. But uh, the fact that he evacuates those firefighters and actually, if memory serves me well, he evacuated about uh, uh, twenty one hundred firefighters with roughly hundred pumps means that he he certainly. Wanted the city to burn, but uh, the by the way, did he to... did he burn his own home as well? Yeah, well, it, it burned in the city. Yes, <laughs> it burned. Okay, so it, yeah. whether he did it or whether it just happened, he it it, it did go. Uh, now, right. but to get to to get to uh, uh, Cameron's main question, if the city is not burned, does that really make a difference to Napoleon? And I think I you know alluded to this earlier as well. Can can Napoleon legitimately expect with all those supplies that you mentioned, and presumably the I mean the, the muskets and sabers and all that are fine, but without gunpowder they they can't be fired, and I don't know how much gunpowder Napoleon still had. Uh, but assuming you know, and there's food and other things, and more importantly, perhaps shelter. Uh, you know, you you've got a it's a cold uh, winter, and you've got to have place to to billet uh, your 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 hundred plus thousand soldiers, and and more coming in presumably on a, you know trickling in from time to time uh would it have made a difference uh, uh cameron suggested maybe it would have forced alexander to to reach a peace uh, uh what what do you think would have been the outcome no actually i don't think it matters whether moscow survived or not because um uh, Russia, uh, Alexander would not have agreed to peace uh, and his condition was clear from the very beginning that as long as a single french soldier uh, was on the russian soil he will not talk to napoleon and he stuck to that uh, to that requirement, to that condition. And I don't think whether Moscow survived or not would have mattered to Alexander. He would have refused to talk to Nep- uh, to Napoleon, uh, and uh, Napoleon would have been ultimately forced to to get out. 
the the, the what matters, however, is as David mentioned, is the fact that if Moscow had survived, then troops would have had a shelter, they would have been supplied, the army would have been in better shape uh, in 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 uh, before leaving Moscow. Uh, but uh, well, that also leads to the point of why Napoleon actually stayed for one month. I mean, why? Why does he need to stay for so long in a in a city that is half destroyed? Couldn't this, he get out in two or three weeks? And and this is yeah. kind of one of the defining questions, isn't it? When for for any of us that study Napoleon, this is one of the defining questions of his entire career: staying in Moscow for that amount of time. You know, in in, in some ways, I think a lot of us think that was the uh, almost the, the deciding factor in his end, as a result of you know the, the cataclysmic results that had to his troops afterwards. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm fascinated to to understand your thoughts on it. Yeah, well, well and, because I mean, yeah, go ahead, David. Well, I was going to say, in, in hindsight. Uh, Obviously, the 35 days that, that he stays there, uh, particularly added to some of the delays uh, earlier in the campaign that, that we talked about, where he seems to really take his time to move along, uh, you know, pushes him further and further uh, in, in, into the winter. And uh, in, in, in my writing, in my books, uh, what I basically say is that Napoleon never really understood. That Alexander meant what he had said, and 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 Napoleon had, had read the the bulletins and stuff that that Emperor Alexander had had produced. You know that that they would do a scorched earth policy. Uh, Napoleon was convinced that that now that he's taken Moscow and beaten Kutuzov at, at Borodino, uh, that that there will be negotiations. Uh, and after the first one or two of his envoys are are sent back. Without an opportunity, uh, he keeps sending more. I mean, he he just can't bring himself to believe that he's gone all the way to Moscow, and nothing's going to come of it. All he's going to be able to do is is go back. and And politically, this is this is going to be very very difficult for Napoleon. Uh, he may have won the battles and everything, but but you know, what's he going to do? Declare victory and leave? Well, that's probably what he should have done, and it might have worked. But but he's in a situation where he's lost an awful lot of men, uh, and he's he, he's not going to have a whole lot to show for it. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, you know, my 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 thinking is that he should have um, declared. What some kind of you know mission accomplished, <laughs> and <Yeah>. then uh, <laughs> went back uh, went back uh, not out of Russia but probably stayed wintered in in western Polish regions Polish Lithuanian regions of it, uh, where the population was more more predisposed towards him and uh, uh, he would have been closer to his uh, supplies uh, depots in 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 Poland and in uh, eastern Germany. What what city would you have recommended? What area? Even even around Vilna. Yeah, yeah. Vilna would have made some sense, I think. He wouldn't have had to go all the way back to to Paris or or even in in, in right. to Germany. Uh, right. And if he and if he stays there, do you think he could have regrouped and gone back in, or do you think that that he would have just given up? What do you think he would have done if he would have if the if the if the withdrawal had happened a few weeks earlier? Or if winter had not come with such a vengeance as as it did on on November sixth, uh, 
what what do you think he would have done? Um, they, um, 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 I don't know, frankly. But my 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 assumption is that he would, if he had stayed there winter, uh, just imagine the Vilna is a Russian soil, right? And uh, it is in part of Russian Empire, and so uh, technically he isn't. He's still at war uh, with Russians, and Russians have to do something about it. And so in the spring, the war would have resumed. Russians probably would have rallied their forces, came out, and by then, uh, Russian uh, society, uh, they would have public opinion, would have demanded um, a more active persecution of the war. So Kutuzov would have had to fight Napoleon uh, once more, and you would have had some a battle near Vilna or uh, you know somewhere between Vilna and Smolensk. And who knows how would that have ended? But at least uh, the Grand Armée would have been in completely different shape, uh, much better, uh, much better prepared for it, and Napoleon would have had a better chance of winning a war. Well, if you're correct, and I think you are, uh, Russian public opinion uh, was only going to take scorched earth, you know, for so long. Uh, that would, in many ways, have been playing into Napoleon's hands because that's what he wanted. He wanted a direct confrontation. He did win pretty much all of the skirmishes, and he won Borodino, albeit a, 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 a dubious victory, a Pyrrhic victory anyway. Uh, so who knows? Anyway, we've, we've played a lot of what-ifs here, and, and I find that to be absolutely fascinating, and I apologize to you, Alexander. I'm, I'm not sure you necessarily anticipated that you would get those kinds of... Oh, um, no, I enjoy it too. Well, no, but, but I, sorry, Adam, I'm going to stick with the what-ifs for a second because I'm not convinced here. <laughs> uh, I'm, I mean, I, I find it hard to um, understand, Alexander, that if, if Napoleon, if, if Moscow hadn't been burnt, if Napoleon had stayed there, with with the the stuff that David just said, I mean, he had been successful in either winning or, or you know coming out at least on top of uh, any battles that they had. Why he wouldn't have been able to continue to prosecute uh, Emperor Alexander for for peace? And once he was holed up in Moscow, he would have stayed through the winter and just followed him to Saint Petersburg. Um, and uh, you know, kept the campaign until he got what he wanted. It was. It seems pretty clear that the Russian military weren't able to defeat the Grand Armée in a stand down battle when, when the troops were at uh, you know full capacity. I mean, how else could it have played out? Why would have? Why would Napoleon have have? Uh, sorry, it wasn't wasn't a retreat. David was a strategic withdrawal. Why would he have? Uh, why would well, that's he? That's what I call it. I know. I've learned that the hard way. Why? Why would he have uh, executed a strategic withdrawal from Russia if Moscow hadn't have been burnt? Because his generals just got sick of the campaign, or uh, other reasons? Well, uh, let let me start with the one thing. Although David. Uh uh, David describes all those battles as victories for for Napoleon. This is not necessarily the Russian view. Uh, if you start actually looking at the Russian campaign, the first few skirmishes Russians believe were Russian victories, and although uh, f- uh, they are rarely mentioned in the French uh, on by the French side, but skirmishes like at Romanova, at Mir, uh, those uh, Russians believe these are made, you know, these are victories and. Uh, uh, actually, uh, in the Russian army, they are celebrated widely. In Smolensk, although uh, French claim it as a victory, Russians believe Smolensk was their success as well. 
at Borodino, <laughs> that is a completely you know separate topic that we can explore. Where Russians firmly believe are convinced that they are, they have fought Napoleon, they have defeated Napoleon. I'll bet they had to <laughs> retreat. Now that's that's a uh, part that they convincingly overlook. So Russians actually. They they believe that their war is continuing quite well for them. But they were retreating. But, so, they, they kept retreating into the middle of their country. I mean, that, well, yeah, that's, that's not a successful campaign when you know you allow the invading army to make its way to your capital. Sure. And and, and remember, Alex, Alex, I, I did I did give the the Russians credit. I said I said that uh, you know the the French were winning you know most of the skirmishes. There 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 clearly were some skirmishes that that, that went the other way. Uh, the the, the 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 reason it's hard to say the Russian uh, army was was winning in terms of traditional uh, ways of looking at it. Certainly, they were winning the the campaign with the scorched earth. There's no question about that. That that was clearly going the way they wanted it to. Uh, but uh, uh, you know, the the the, the French are. Grand Armée, the Allied, I should say, really, Grand Armée is still moving forward. Uh, Smolensk, uh, I, I've not heard Russians that I've talked to uh, claim Smolensk as a victory because, after oh, all, no, no, no. They, it, it, they, 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 they leave Smolensk. Now, they, they didn't do Napoleon that much good because a lot of Smolensk had been burned as well. So, you know, there's, there's not as much there. Uh, I mean, if, if Smolensk had not been so, so badly damaged in that, camp, in that battle, <clears throat> it might very well be that Napoleon could have wintered in Smolensk. And, and even with the, the, the problems in Smolensk, he might have been better off uh, wintering there rather than, than moving on toward Moscow. No, no, I, I'm not. I'm not talking about the uh, present-day historians. What I talk about contemporaries looking at this, uh, these battles and believing these are Russian successes. Right. Uh, for example, at Smolensk, before the Napoleon gets to Smolensk on on August 14th, he fights that first battle at Krasnir, where a right. small division uh, uh, stops the Grand Armee for a day. Right, and so for mm-hmm. Russians, this is the emphasis they make that a small division survives the battle, stops the Grand Armee, and saves the army. They are not looking at this retreat uh, that follows Battle of Smolensk, but rather the emphasis is completely different direction. But going back to the uh, Cameron's argument is, why would the Russians talk to Napoleon? Well, he'd just taken their capital, Alexander. So what? <laughs> well, so he, what? Well, he would have kept going. He would have taken St. Petersburg as well, surely. He couldn't. Uh, no. Well, it's, <laughs> if he, if he, uh, Napoleon considered going to St. Petersburg back in Smolensk and he decided he couldn't because of terrain, distance, weather. So even if he is Moscow, he would have had came to the same conclusion. So he had to stay the whole winter in Moscow. And by the yeah. time and then Russians – uh, yeah, but look – by this time, Napoleon's forces are dwindling while the Russians' forces are increasing. Uh, the, Kutuzov is receiving reinforcements on, on a weekly basis. Right. So and you're so, saying that if Napoleon had been able to, to stay out the winter in Moscow, the, the Russians would have had uh, superior numbers and uh, it would have turned out very differently. Um, I, this, this is my argument that okay. uh, Kutuzov would have received those reinforcements, would have increased his uh, size, would have intercepted Napoleon's communication lines, and would have hauled up Napoleon inside Moscow. So, now, and, and, what and Napoleon I, by the way, would have done next, I don't know. I, yeah. by the way, agree with Alex on this one. I think that uh, 
the only way that Napoleon could could possibly go to uh, St. Petersburg would be in, in really essentially a, an entirely different campaign. Let's let's say that Alex uh, Alex's idea was followed, and, and Napoleon is able to withdraw after taking Moscow. He waits around for a week or two and says, "Okay, fine," and and he he, he leaves. Now he, his army is 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 less demoralized. Uh, and of course, the weather is going to be much better. So let's assume that he is able to withdraw in reasonably good order uh, back along his lines of communication. Of course, now he's picking up soldiers uh, that have been left in fortresses and, and in guard positions. So he goes back past Molens, perhaps, and and uh, uh, moves to uh, to Villiers or some such place. Now, in 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 in. By the time late spring rolls around, uh, two things will will have happened. Uh, one, the, the the Russians, as as Alex says, will have been reinforced. Uh, Kutuzov's army will will be rested uh, and 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 uh, reinforced with with people. But the French army, the the Allied army, will will be also. Uh, arguably, I, I don't think at that point you're going to have uh, the Austrians or the Prussians or anyone else beginning to question uh, whether the campaign was worth it. Because from their standpoint, they went in, they kicked some Russian butt, and then they withdrew to a, a good, safe place. Maybe there will be a move towards St. Petersburg. Clearly, Katusov and his enhanced army uh, will oppose that move. Uh, I think in a normal pitched battle, uh, Napoleon is the odds-on favorite. But as both of you said, you know who knows what will happen. Uh, the, the Russians are a very formidable force, uh, and and uh, Kutuzov is has shown himself, along with some of the other generals, to be, you know, they're they're not chopped liver. They're not Napoleon. Nobody is Napoleon. Uh, but but they're a match uh, for. For uh, the, the the French officer corps in, in in many respects, and and of course they're fighting on their home soil, and and they have the the irregulars, they have the peasants, they uh, they they've got the support of the people. So uh, the, the 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 Russians clearly will have a, an advantage, just as they had an advantage in in what we would then be calling the first Russian campaign of 1812. The the Russian campaign of 1813 may may run into exactly the same problem. St. Petersburg is a long way away. Uh, who's to say whether Napoleon would have been successful or not? We can fall back on the cliche, history, however, would have been very different had it happened that way. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> well, that, I, so I, what, thanks, well, thanks, guys, for, for going into that depth because it's been a, a question in my mind I've had for, for many, many years. It's interesting to hear your perspectives on that. Thank you. Now, oh, thank Napoleon... You. Napoleon, yeah, you're welcome. Uh, that's that's why we're here, uh, Cameron, to 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 help uh, you in your education uh, uh, process. Uh, where, at do any I, rate, where do I send the check again, David? I'm sorry. Where do I send the check again? You send, send the check straight away to me. You can put it in my PayPal account. You can, in fact, you can do it while we're talking. <laughs> at, at any rate, uh, uh, so you don't forget, send it before midnight tonight, as the old ads uh, say on, on on the telly. Uh, Napoleon decides after about 35 days uh, and after Murat's uh, cavalry uh, gets uh, its head handed to it on a platter uh, on the 18th of October uh, by, by the Russians, uh, Napoleon makes a very quick decision 
to leave and 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 uh, by the 18th uh or rather the next day after the 18th uh the grand army not so grand anymore of course begins its its withdrawal and and they were going to try to go uh, alexander they were going to try to go uh uh further to the south down toward minsk i think and and uh that would have been uh uh, a, a warmer way they wouldn't have had to go past the 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 god awful battlefield of Borodino with all those bloated bodies, which wasn't going to do morale any good, uh, and and that might have also uh, changed uh, the the story of the of the of the Russian campaign. Uh, but but what happened to keep Napoleon from from taking this more southerly route? Um, well, um, actually, the start of the uh, strategic withdrawal, as you like to uh, <laughs> call it, David, uh, the start of it is rather promising. Um, remember those flying detachments that Kutuzov has around Moscow? Well, uh, Napoleon is able to move his army out of Moscow uh, is in, 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 such, in such a way that uh, Kutuzov will not be aware of the, Russia, of the French retreat uh, for over a day, almost two days. And how did so, he do that? How how is that possible to to move that many soldiers out, and 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 the enemy who was presumably in the area after all, Miraz's uh, forces had just been defeated just outside the gates. Uh, uh, how how was it possible for Napoleon to 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 do that? It's uh, the, the answer is simply that the Russian scouts dropped the ball, and ah. uh, they they finally the 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 scouts the. Um, uh, that uh, who discovered Napoleon's army retreating belonged to a detachment of uh, Setslavin, one of the flying uh, uh, commander of the, one of the flying detachments, and uh, actually Setslavin himself. This is a story goes. Uh, actually climbed on the tree and he saw these like, long columns of the Grand Armee marching out in in uh, in a distance, and see, he immediately sends a message to to Kutuzov saying that the Grand Armee is moving. And in, in, uh, considering the direction of Grand Armée, uh, the uh, realization was that the uh, French are retreating. Well, the Grand Armée is retreating to the southwest uh, towards uh, in, in towards the provinces of Tula and the general direction of Kiev, where of course those provinces are the breadwinners of Russian Empire. This is where the grain was produced, and so they are attached by the war. And so Napoleon could have easily uh, wintered there. And uh, Kutuzov immediately sends uh, the Sixth Corps, by the, led by General Dokhturov, uh, to intercept uh, the French army, to cut its route, uh, to stop it while the rest of the army uh, marched to support. And so uh, that attempt to stop the French uh, leads to this famous Battle of Malo Yaroslavitz on October 24th. I'm glad you pronounced that for me. I'm I'm looking at it in my notes, and I'm thinking, oh, I hope he pronounces that and doesn't expect <laughs> me to. <laughs> yeah, Malo Yaroslavitz means a small, a little Yaroslavitz. Uh, and so city is actually a rather small uh, uh, um, small town over on, on a hill uh, overlooking a river, uh, the Luzha River. And uh, here, uh, Dokhturov uh, arrives uh, on... Uh, on, on one side of the river, uh, the, on the other side, you have uh, the core, the fourth core of Eugene de Beauharnais, Napoleon's stepson. 
and the two cores clash, and this is one of the uh, one of the very interesting battles that is uh, uh, unfortunately overlooked in Napoleonic Wars. Although it had uh, very could have had very important uh, consequences, uh, the city uh, the fighting is taking place in a city. The city itself changed hands uh, up to a dozen times. Uh, by the time it, the battle is over. The city is actually completely destroyed, and there is uh, the Russian memoirs who leave Russian and the French actually memoirs that leave these stunning descriptions of troops being burned inside the houses and this uh, sh- uh, corpse lying the streets, uh, just uh, completely burned. Uh, but by the end of this battle, uh, the battle is actually a French victory because the French. Uh, uh, well, technically, it's Italian victory because the uh, Eugene de Beauharnais Corps was made of Italians, but uh, <laughs> it Who is anxious a, to get to warmer weather. <laughs> Indeed, if not all the way home. Yes. But uh, they, uh, they, the allies, uh, let's call them allies, uh, uh, they captured the city, and so that was a, their victory. But it is a strategic victory for Russians because uh, the, fr- the Napoleon's advance towards south, uh, you know, t- southwest is stopped. And what happens here is rather uh, remarkable. Uh, when the battle is over at night, uh, that night both Napoleon and Kutuzov organized small councils of war to decide what to do next. And so Napoleon looks at the disposition of the Russian army, uh, the, which he could see across the river. And so he decides uh, that the Russians are ready to fight for another battle. They have a good positions um, on heights. And so he decides this is not the position he is willing to fight on. And so he, of course, famously orders retreat in direction of Borodino, Mozhaisk, and then all the way back to Smolensk. But the very same night, Kutuzov, at his own uh, uh, council of war, uh, makes a decision uh, that to retreat as well because he believes that Napoleon will flank him. And so this is not the position Kutuzov wants to fight either. <laughs> and so the following day, on 24th October, this is the first probably battle, or the only battle in military history where... After a battle, both sides uh, simultaneously retreat in opposite directions. Uh, Napoleon retreats to north you know, west, and Kutuzov retreats to southeast. And now, so, now go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I've read that that Kutuzov actually retreated first, and that in the morning had Napoleon done proper uh, uh, reconnaissance. That he would have realized that Kutuzov was gone, uh, and and in fact could have continued to move uh, in, in the direction that he wanted to. Is is that true? Yeah, um, if Napoleon would have conducted a better reconnaissance, yes. But by that time, Napoleon's decision was already made uh, by the morning when you could have conducted a reconnaissance and seen it. Um, decision was already made to retreat, and so there is no push to do reconnaissance because doing that will will naturally mean clashing with the Russian scouts. And so, um, Italians uh, uh, or you know, the f- from the 15th Division, which are in, in Malo Yaroslavets, of course, are exhausted from the fighting from the previous day, and they have no no desire to do it. Sure. And so Napoleon well, retreats to Mozhaisk. And 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 that of course is is his downfall in in in, in many respects uh, that that he did not uh, go uh, go forward. What, yes, uh, because in actually in in, in my in my book uh, that is coming up, I make 
if I can mean, Larry's is probably uh, more, you know, the second most important battle of the whole 1812 campaign. And in some respect, you know, it is more important than Borodino because although Borodino is the bloodiest battle of the campaign and one of the bloodiest of the wars, it ultimately, you know, ultimately the, 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 the end results of it uh, are debatable. But Malayaroslavets, had Napoleon won at Malayaroslavets, cast aside Kutuzov and marched to south, uh, the campaign would have uh, had a completely different outcome. Uh, on the other side, uh, if the Russians had defeated decisively, which is, of course, far stretch, but still, if they had defeated Napoleon decisively at Malayaroslavets, the campaign would have been over much earlier. Well, that's true. By the way, you say that, 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 that the name of that town means a small Yaroslavets, but what is a Yaroslavets? Yaroslavets is, a, is, a, is an ancient name, actually, in, in Russia. Um, and usually, um, actually, there was a city, Yaroslavl, in Russia, and so Yaroslavets is uh, one of the uh, you know, versions of that city name. Okay, so this is a small one of them. Right, and, uh, yes. Uh-huh. Okay, well, so now we've got uh, Napoleon, uh, you know, back on the road again, retracing his steps. He he goes he goes past Borodino, uh, and of course uh, uh, there's the 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 weather turns really bad on on the uh, on the sixth of November. Uh, the uh, uh, famous uh, bulletin where he says, you know, the, the the Grand Armee, you know, so so good on the fifth is in such tough shape on the seventh, and so on. And we'll we'll we, we posted that I think when we covered Russia the time before, uh, and uh, uh, he gets to uh, Smolensk. Now the, the 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 first big question it seems to me was, would it have been possible for him to 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 winter in Smolensk would that have made any sense at all? Um, uh, <laughs> yes or no. On one side, yes, it would have made some sense to stay in Smolensk and regroup, but it would have been uh, probably better to do it in Vilna. Why? Why Smolensk? Uh, you still have a long way from the border, from the supply depots. So just make another move to Vilna and establish your base there. But on the other hand. It, it, it was uh, practic- it, uh, once the army reached Molensk and once the troops uh, pillaged, uh, plundered, whatever, whatever term you want to use, those supply depots, uh, the decision is already prede- decided. The maid's made. Napoleon can't stay in Smolensk. There, there is no way he can winter there. Yeah, and, and I agree, and that's, I've, I've written that in my books as well, that, that he, didn't, he didn't really have any choice. Uh, so tell us more about this this retreat. What what uh, what do the Russian memoirs that you've read, the Russian accounts of of, of the retreat, say that that might throw a, a different perspective uh, on on the uh, on on how those of us in the West see it? Um, well, actually, Smolensk is a good point to to provide the Russian view of it because um, what happens after Smolensk, as you know, there's uh, uh, Napoleon retreats from Smolensk uh, towards Krasny, where in in mid November you have a series of battles. Right, the second uh, battle of Krasny taking place from 14th of November all the way to 17th. And so this three-day battle uh, is uh, rather interesting because, of course, French claim that they this is their victory. Uh, but Russians claim it as well. <laughs> and so if you read books uh, by Buturlin, by Mikhailovsky, Danilevsky, or by Soviet authors like Garnich or Biskrovny, they all call it a decisive victory. 
won by the Russians. But my favorite one is by is a by famous Soviet author, which was a dean of Napoleonic studies in Soviet era, and his name is uh, Pavel Zhilin. And Pavel Zhilin uh, writes in his book, and rather influ- uh, influential at, uh, book at, at, at the time. That the three long, three day long battle at Krasny ended with the complete destruction of Napoleon's army. Uh, and so <laughs> that view, uh, dominated it. But at this, uh, in reality, of course, we know that, uh, although each, uh, uh core of Eugene, Davout, and Ney were, uh, temporarily cut off and Ney's core was actually surrounded, none of them was forced to lay down. And so this was a great opportunity, uh, to destroy the Grand Armée that the Russians squandered. And uh, Kutuzov, uh, in many respects, knew it. And so what he did is, uh, right after the battle is over, um, he starts writing reports to Alexander. And on November 18, he writes a a main report in in which he says that uh, yesterday we have defeated the enemy in a major uh, battle at Krasny. And then uh, he says that uh, the confusion in which the enemy remains is indescribable and that Napoleon himself fled with his entourage, abandoning the army to the slaughter of our our great warriors. Well, uh, Alexander reads it and he, of course, expects some, uh, you know, uh, evidence for it. And uh, while he's waiting evidence, he issues that famous, uh, uh, well, he famously grants Kutuzov the title of Prince of Smolensk. And he generously rewards senior Russian commanders involved in the battle. But then the information reaches Alexander. What could have been done at Krasny, and he's very angry at this. And um, he writes, uh, he writes uh, in actually in, in November that it is with, with extreme sadness that I realize that the hope of wiping away the dishonor of the loss of Moscow by cutting the enemy's line of retreat, has vanished completely. And so he, he tells uh, Kutuzov that all misfortunes stemming from your actions would be your personal responsibility. And so Alexander is, uh, is quite unhappy. Uh, besides Alexander, the other Russian, especially senior Russian officers and generals, are unhappy. Uh, for example, Nikolai Raevsky, uh, one of the prominent Russian generals, criticizes Kutuzov for misrepresenting the battle as a decisive victory. Uh, the, an officer, uh, Colonel Ehler, who commanded uh, Russian artillery at Krasny, uh, he also complained that the, uh, the battle was mishandled, and he says that the French were driven back like a herd, and they were resisting only when their route was blocked, abandoning wagons, carriages, and even artillery without any defense. So how could we, how could we let them go? And then uh, my, one of my favorite descriptions uh, is, of course, uh, from Denis Davidov that David already mentioned, in which Davidov writes that the action at Krasny that some of our military historians pompously named as a three-day decisive battle should instead be described as a three-day search for hungry, half-naked Frenchmen. Only insignificant detachments such as mine, not our main army, might be proud of such trophies. And so you have this uh, discontent brewing in the, in, in the army at, at the way Kutuzov handles it, and... Uh, but well, by the way, is, let me yes, go ahead. Let me let, let me interrupt this for a minute, if you'll forgive me. Uh, are, is is this discontent uh, legitimate? Uh, did Kutuzov mishandle it? Was this in fact uh, a blown opportunity in, in your in your view? Yes, I think I, th- I think it was a blown opportunity. But this is uh, this is an this is the this is an important uh, you know. Uh, 
um, provision that you have to um, consider is that uh, Kutuzov uh, actions at Krasny uh, might be hard to explain, but they are important uh, in, in because Kutuzov is not thinking in, in short-term goal, but rather he he thinks long-term. And so, if you look at his at his documents, uh, what happens is uh, he certainly con- uh, is concerned about fighting Napoleon himself, and uh, actually, uh, he in uh, he issues a, a series of instructions in November during the Battle of Krasny, where he asks his commanders to use all means necessary. This is a quote: "To use all means necessary to locate the exact position of the Imperial Guard," and that would imply where Napoleon himself was. Uh, and then there is a note because the field marshal does not intend to attack where the imperial guard is. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and so, so Kutuzov doesn't want to fight Napoleon himself. And the reason for that is that Kutuzov wants to preserve his army. And uh, he knows Napoleon is already retreating. That the winter starvation elements will will do the damage to the army. And uh, he ta- tells he actually says uh, that the, uh, why he acts this way. Uh, in, in November, uh, one of the, uh, uh, the Grand Armée's chief commissary, General Pibusk, was captured, and uh, Kutuzov interviewed him. And Pibusk later wrote memoirs in which he recounts this uh, conversation with Kutuzov. And Pibusk writes that Kutuzov tells him the, uh, the following, that uh, he was convinced of the French defeat, and he had no desire to sacrifice a single soldier to, com- to, to further achieve it. That, you know, he sees that the victory is guaranteed. And then he adds that this is how we, the barbarians of the north, conserve our men. Uh, but uh, well, and, and and that makes a lot of sense to me. But let me ask you this then: uh, Why wasn't he able to convince uh, Alexander? I mean, the way you uh, describe Alexander's, re- I'm surprised he didn't, you know, withdraw the designation of Prince of Smolensk uh, uh, from Kutuzov. Uh, he was he, apparently that upset. Uh, doesn't uh, Alexander understand uh, that, that that Kutuzov is right that 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 Napoleon is leaving, uh, and and that, that there's going to be more fighting down the line, and we want to make sure our army is reasonably preserved? Uh, who do you think is 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 correct there, or or why? I, I it's obvious, I guess, who you think is correct. Why don't you think Alexander understood that? Was there something about well, his what- personality, or what? Well, Alexander wants to see more decisive action, not simply uh, you know following the Grand Armée and letting it get out. But from Kutuzov's point of view, the the damage is already done to the Grand Armée. It is heavily damaged. That Napoleon is is great, great has lost many many men, and uh, he doesn't see any need to for to conduct more uh, active operations. The reason being. Uh, he actually tells uh, Prince Eugene of Württemberg, one of the Russian generals, the following. Uh, this is a quote that our young hotheads are angry at me for I restrain their frenzy, but they do not realize that the circumstances are more effective than our weapons. We cannot reach the frontiers with empty hands, meaning without army. And when uh, uh, Robert Wilson, the uh, British commissary to the uh, to the Russian army, who is adamant about you know he bitterly criticizes Kutuzov, he Wilson is actually actively campaigns. Uh, uh, again, uh, to, uh, to remove Kutuzov and appoint somebody else, and so Wilson uh, has this uh, exchange, very hard-hitted exchange with Kutuzov, in which he uh, you know, criticizes Kutuzov's actions or calls for more dynamic operations. And Kutuzov bluntly tells him, 
I don't care about your objections. And then, quote, I am by no means sure that the total destruction, and this is the key, the total destruction of Napoleon and his army would be such a benefit to the world. His succession would not fall to Russia or any other continental power, but to that which already commands the sea. You can guess which one. Mm-hmm. And whose domination, whose domination would then be intolerable to everyone. And so yeah, you see how long-term he is thinking. He doesn't want to destroy Napoleon completely. He wants to let him out because if Napoleon is weakened, then he will be more willing to talk to Russians. There will be some peace, some rearrangements made, and then Napoleon will be able to. Will you know Russia will be will use Napoleon to against the British. Uh, That's that's what what, that's what uh, uh, Kutuzov is thinking. And my favorite one is uh, his exchange with General Bennigsen. Uh, Bennigsen also calls for a more active strategy. And so they have also a very heated exchange, uh, uh, and uh, Kutuzov ta- tells him, we'll never come to an agreement, this is a quote, we'll never come to an agreement. You are only thinking of the benefit for England, while to me, if that damn island sinks to the bottom of the sea, I wouldn't even see- sigh. <laughs> <laughs> With apologies to our British uh, listeners and, and sympathizers, uh, we've been accused of saying essentially the same thing ourselves, uh, Alex. Now, I'm going to pursue this a little further, though, and I uh, thank you for these wonderful quotes, by the way. You'll, you'll have to send me that one. I, I, that, that's wonderful. I, I really like that. Uh, but I want to go back to, to Emperor Alexander. Uh, as, 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 as we've talked about on this show before and as I've written and, and as is quite well known, of course, uh, Alexander and Napoleon had become, at least on the surface, it seems, fairly friendly had, after Tilson had, had uh, developed a, a, a pretty decent relationship. Uh, at least Napoleon thought there was a, a decent relationship there. Uh, and, and you're suggesting that, that uh, Alexander wanted essentially the destruction of Napoleon – while Kutuzov, quite rightly, I think, uh, I think Kutuzov was, was was really spot on on this one, uh, wants to preserve Napoleon as a buffer against the Brits. Uh, do you think that Alexander was was beginning to take this whole thing personally, uh, or, or or was it maybe even different than that? I know that that uh, uh, in 1813. Uh, Alexander begins to see the whole campaign as a as as a holy crusade uh, against the the infidel French, uh, in, in essence, or at least the infidel Napoleon. Uh, so, what do you think's going on with Alexander here? What what do you think is is causing him to to not see the geopolitical strategy of Kutuzov as being, in a word, brilliant? I I think. Uh, are at least very perceptive, uh, and, and instead wanting the the, the destruction of, of of the ogre of Corsica. What, what's what's going on there? Do you think? Um, I, I do think it's it's, a, it's in many respects uh, it becomes a personal uh, you know hatred. Uh, you can't even say hatred, but because at the same time, when you look what Alexander does in eighteen thirteen and or fourteen, uh, there is certain certainly. Uh, Alexander has uh, some kind feeling for Napoleon, but by that time his uh, character, of course, changes. But in 1812, uh, he does take it very personal. And uh, one of the things that, uh, for example, uh, uh, he, he develops, Alexander develops that uh, this the so-called Saint Petersburg plan, 
to entrap Napoleon. Quite often, uh, people assume that Napoleon was simply retreating and Russians were following him. But in reality, Russians actually had a plan known as St. Petersburg plan to uh, defeat Napoleon, to uh, entrap and then defeat Napoleon. And so in, uh, according to that plan, and he's quite revealing, uh, the, uh, the ultimate goal of, uh, of that plan was, uh, quote, to drive the Saxons into the Duchy of Warsaw, the Austrians into Galicia, the Prussians and Württembergers across the Niemen, and here's the interesting one, and the French must be annihilated to the last. And so he says mm-hmm. here that he wants to allow these uh, different allies to get out, to escape, but you know, he emphasizes the French must be annihilated to the last. And uh, it's, it's difficult to explain why is that change. Uh, uh, it, it certainly it, you see you, you feel more personal hatred here, uh, but uh, it changes because uh, it, and probably because uh, Alexander emerges as a, as the as victor over Napoleon in 1812, and that probably has an effect. And so he becomes more of a magnanimous uh, victor over 1814, where because of his involvement, Napoleon is not as severely punished as he could have. That's very true. So, Napoleon goes back to, to Paris. The Grand Armée, such as it is, uh, survives. Uh, what, what would you say were the consequences? How, how would you describe the, 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 the true meaning, the, 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 the true consequences of, of the campaign? Not just to Napoleon. I mean, it's obvious that it was bad news for Napoleon and good news for Alexander. But for for Europe itself, uh, you know, what would what would you say were were the long term consequences of the campaign? I think the my, my uh, Russian bias will, would come out right here because um, uh, not to you know sorry to disappoint my British colleagues, but uh, uh, I think without Russian campaign, Napoleon Napoleon would have survived the Peninsula War. His empire would have survived for much longer. The Peninsula affair would have been resolved by Napoleon uh, if 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 not for this invasion. Uh, just imagine, I mean, Napoleon did quite well when he went to uh, to Spain in 1808. Uh, and just imagine if he had went back to Spain in 1813 or 14. Uh, who knows what Wellington would have done, right? It's very interesting to, to ponder on it. But with the Russian victory in 1812, it changes completely the geostrategic circumstances in, in Europe. It is the war that... Uh, uh, that allows the allies of the former allies of Napoleon to break away, starting with Prussia and then Austria. And uh, you know, one thing to remember is that Napoleon is defeated not in the field of Spain, but in the field of Germany. And the defeat comes primarily at the hands of Russians supported by Austrians and Prussians. Uh, and it is because of the defeats at Leipzig uh, the, or uh, the uh, battles like, uh, uh, you know, the, the battles, in, the other battles in Germany that Napoleon is forced to go back to France. It's not because of Wellington's victories in, in Spain. And so the Russian victory in 1812 is, is very important. It, and in Russia, it is justly uh, you know, venerated. It, it has a very special status in Russian history. And in many respects, this, this is a conflict that brings Russia to the uh, pinnacle, the Russian Empire, to the pinnacle of its military glory at, up to that moment. Uh, there is no sure. other moment uh, in, in Russian history up to that uh, um, or up to 19th century where Russia is as powerful uh, as uh, as uh, dominant as in 1812 to 1814. 
the Russians call this the Patriotic War of, of 1812, and uh, they're very, very serious about it, as, 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 as well they should be. Uh, and, and, and I agree with you, by the way, uh, uh, had, had Napoleon won a, a, a great victory at Borodino and, and if peace, uh, uh, had peace broken out, had, had Alexander uh, not capitulated but simply said, okay, let's sit down and come to some kind of an agreement – uh, and and put it into to this fighting between between friends, uh, then uh, clearly uh, what was going on with Wellington would have been far uh, less important because you take the Grand Armée uh, in fairly decent shape. You 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 don't have the terrible retreat. Uh, you 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 leave Russia and you pick up all the people along along your lines of communication and so on and your allies and there was a couple of other armies out there that were flanking Napoleon that really weren't involved in the, in in the in the interior stuff. You bring those back in and now you send Napoleon at the head of 150,000 uh, soldiers or so forth uh, uh, to to join with the forces that are already in Iberia. Uh, Masena and so on, and yeah, I, I, with all due respect to Wellington, who who, who I do, you know, have some admiration for. Uh, I I think that uh, Iberia is going to turn out quite differently uh, as well. I think the to, just to sort of close, you know, this segment. Uh, I think that the, the the bottom line to to Russia wasn't in the numbers, uh, and it wasn't in in the retreat and the land that was taken or not taken and so on and the soldiers that were lost. I think that it was in the the realization that Napoleon was not invincible. Uh, I really think, you know, even though Iberia was already showing that the that the French were not invincible, I think it took Russia before uh the 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 belief that, that people had that if you were up against Napoleon, you were doomed. The, the Russian campaign showed that, that you were not necessarily doomed if you went against Napoleon, that maybe as Wellington is said to have said that Napoleon's hat was worth 50,000 men on the field, but that might not be enough uh, in, 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 in the right circumstances. At any rate, uh, we're, we're well over an hour, which is about what we normally do, an hour and 10 or 15. And we didn't get to one of the things I really wanted us to do uh, today, Alex. Uh, for those of you who, who aren't aware of it, Alex has done a tremendous amount of research on the various uh, generals uh, uh, in, in the Russian campaign, the, 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 the Russian generals. He, he knows uh, them as well as many Western scholars know uh, Boharnay or Marshal Ney or Marshal Murat or Masséna and Davu, all the names that are familiar to most Western uh, students of the Napoleonic period. Uh, uh, to to Alexander, uh, the, the the Russian generals. Uh, he has he has the same command and understanding of the Russian generals, and and so Alex, if I can if I can sweet talk you into this, how about coming back for another session and and telling <laughs> us about about some of those personalities? Would you do that oh, for uh, us? 
Uh, that will be an honor. And uh, you're absolutely right, David, that uh, uh, the French uh, marshals uh, are very famous. Uh, we all know who they, you know, those 26 that wrote uh, uh, were, but uh, I'm, I'm not sure that many people would name 26 Russian generals who fought against Napoleon. Uh, I'll bet uh, one thing to remember is that those 26 Russian generals won the war, right? They were the victors, while the French marshals ended up as losers. So, uh, on that happy note... <laughs> oh, oh, I'm not going to let you get away. I'm not going to let you... I'm not going to let you get away calling the, the French... Uh, Marshals losers, but but they but they did uh, manage not to win the, this particular campaign. You're absolutely right, and 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 not you're also right. the whole war, David. Whole war. Well, it's after Russians created in Paris in 1814. Don't forget after, after Kutuzov and and maybe uh, Bagration and and maybe Davidov and one or two others at the most. Most most Western uh, students of Napoleon uh, really don't know much about the the uh, the Russian uh, generals. So so, ladies and gentlemen, next time we will find out uh, about maybe not twenty six, but we'll find out about <laughs> a number of the more important and the more interesting uh, Russian generals from the Napoleonic period. And so until then, Alex, thanks a lot for coming on. We've, we've enjoyed it thoroughly as much as I can enjoy talking about the 1812 campaign and hearing about how the, the French were losers, but, uh, uh, we'll do it again next time. Thank you so much for having me. It was a Pleasure. Thank you again, Alex. And before we go, David, I've got a little bit of late-breaking news. Um, you will recall that the, we were introduced, you and I, by uh, Staten Rabin, uh, an author who lives uh, in New York City, who wrote a book for teenagers uh, several years ago about Napoleon's relationship with uh, Betsy Balcom. And I just got an email like five minutes ago from Staten Uh with news that the film version of her book has uh, been resurrected. There was talk of it four or five years ago when I first interviewed Staten on my other podcast, G'day World, uh, which is what led to this podcast, really. I interviewed Staten, That's she introduced right. me to you and it led to the show. And it's, it's, right. it, the, the film's kind of been uh, <laughs> on and off and on and off as these things happen in Hollywood. It was originally going to be directed by... Um, French director Patrice Chereau and was supposed to star, I think originally uh, Al Pacino was attached to play Napoleon and Scarlett Johansson was attached to play Betsy Balcom. Scarlett Johansson's almost 70 years old now, so that's probably not going to happen. <laughs> but um, I don't think there's that much makeup in the world that could make, <laughs> make her into a 16-year-old girl. <laughs> uh, although I just saw her latest uh, Woody Allen film and uh, she's hot, hot i got to say. Anyway, uh, apparently uh, the, the press release says uh, Killer Films has resurrected Betsy and the Emperor, the screen version of Staten Rabin's children's book previously set up at Warner Brothers Kids Unit Storyopolis. Pick will be helmed by John Curran. It stars Al Pacino, who's been attached to the project since its original incarnation. Artie Cohen and Joseph Grincombe's GC Corps has acquired all film and stage adaptation rights and will finance Killer Films producers. Brian Edgar will write the script about a 14-year-old girl who meets Napoleon after his exile on the island of St. Helena. book was published in 2004. Uh, read the full article at Variety.com. Ladies and gentlemen, I'll put a link up on the blog. 
Um, I, for one, would love to see this film made. I, I, you know, I just, before he dies, I want to see Al Pacino play Napoleon. Um, I would have loved if uh, either Coppola or Kubrick had made uh, their Napoleon films and uh, cast a young Al Pacino in the role of a young Napoleon. I just don't think it would have got any better than that, quite frankly. Well, well, this is this is good news. I, I hope it comes to pass. I, I've been involved in a potential movie on Napoleon, and and it's been put on, I think, long term deep freeze. Uh, uh, so you're involved you know, as the, the actor. You're you're, you're going to star as Napoleon, then? <laughs> oh, I'd love to have done that, but I'm afraid that. Uh, that that wasn't likely in the cards. I I used to say I I would want a, a role where I was the silent guard uh, at the at the, at the door of Saint Helena or something, you know. But <laughs> but uh, I uh, Hudson Lowe. No, no, God, no. My reputation, bad enough as it is, would have been ruined if I played Hudson Lowe. But but uh, at any rate, uh, movie uh, ideas have come and gone on this, uh, including Staten's uh, uh, book. But uh, let's let's hope uh, that in this economy they uh, they're able to get the job done. That'd be great. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks again, Alex. Thank you, David. Thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you again soon. Thank you. Oh.